this urban-rural divide, which we've seen in the US, which we've seen in the UK, and in many Western election campaigns playing out, this is also very much the case in this French presidential election this year. Are you on the side of nations or are you on the side of bigger ideas like the European Union, like the Western world and all of that? Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. This Sunday, French voters will head to the polls to choose their president for the next five years. The first round of voting whittled the options down to two earlier this month. Voters will now choose between the incumbent, centrist Emmanuel Macron, and the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen, who is making her third bid for the presidency. The contest will serve as a rematch of the election five years ago, in which Macron won with two-thirds of the vote. This time, however, the race appears to be much closer. According to Politico Europe's average of the polls, 55% of French voters support Macron and 45% support Le Pen. So while Macron is certainly the favorite, sizable polling errors have happened before in French elections. Macron's popularity leapt in the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it has since fallen as focus has turned to the cost of living and public benefits, issues that have been central to Le Pen's campaign. So today, we're going to take a look at the dynamics playing out in France's election, see how things may be similar or different to the U.S., and of course, get acquainted with French polling. So here with me to do that is Cornelius Hirsch, the founder of Politico Europe's Poll of Polls, or perhaps you could say European 538. Cornelius has joined us before to talk about the German election, COVID reactions, and more. Welcome back to the podcast, Cornelius. Hi, Gail. So great to be back. Also here with us is Clea Colcutt, French politics reporter at Politico Europe. Welcome. It's so good to have you. Hi. So Cornelius, let's dive right into the nitty-gritty of forecasting this election. How would you characterize the candidates' chances of winning this Sunday? The top line number is that Macron is 10 points ahead of Marine Le Pen in our political poll of polls. But the most recent trend speaks in favor of Emmanuel Macron, whose lead in the polls has increased slightly in recent days from only six points around the first round of voting to now 10 points in our poll of polls. So I would say Emmanuel Macron at this point is clearly a favorite, but an upset is not impossible. And alone the fact that uh, a far-right candidate in France stands at 45% is already quite a striking uh, number for one of the major economies in the European Union. How accurate has French polling been historically? I mean, at this point, a 10-point upset, would that be a sort of earthquake for the French polling industry? That would be uh, more than just an earthquake, and I would say highly unlikely. French pollsters actually have a very, very accurate track record in the past. And also when we look at the first round of this 2022 presidential election, they've been really, really close to the actual result, missing, for example, the first round result of Emmanuel Macron by only one and a half points and the first round result of Le Pen by even less. Yeah, I was looking back a little bit to see if there had ever been a polling error the size of the gap between Macron and Le Pen. I found like a seven and a half point polling error and an eight and a half point polling error in 2002 and 1981, but not quite 10 points. So I guess 10 points would be beyond the kinds of polling errors we've seen over the past several decades in France. But of course, you know, for observers, important to keep an open mind about the accuracy of polls. 
Clea, after the first round vote, you wrote that, quote, the results cement the idea that France has moved beyond the traditional left-right divide that has dominated post-war politics and toward a battle pitching anti-immigration nationalists represented by Le Pen against pro-European progressives who are open to globalization. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sort of what happened to the mainstream center-left versus center-right conflict of post-war Europe? Yeah, I mean, it's quite extraordinary how that division has just disappeared in the past 10 years in France. And when Macron came to power, there was the idea that maybe it was an upset, something temporary, because the candidates had other difficulties. But with this election, and again, the centrist Emmanuel Macron facing Uh, you know, the far right Marine Le Pen, who's very much on a sort of nationalist platform, you have this idea of the two main blocks, the left-wing block and the right-wing block, what would be in the states, you know, the Republicans against the Democrats, just has completely vanished, in a sense, from politics. And so now, if you look at the results from the first round, you have Emmanuel Macron, who got about like 27% of the vote, And then you have two big poles on either end of the spectrum, so on the far right and the far left. And these two poles, which are very much on populist programs, on the one hand sort of nationalist, and on the other hand also slightly nationalist when it comes to the far left, against this sort of big block in the middle of people who are open to Europe, open to the forces of globalization, open to a much more fluid society. And I think it poses a difficulty for Emmanuel Macron as he as he's going into the second round because he's sort of battling on two sides, as it were. Why exactly did this happen? I mean, on one hand, you look at a multi-party system like they have in France, and maybe it's just easier to speed up a realignment that we've seen in other countries that's tried to fit itself into center-left, center-right parties. In France, you can just start a new party and as Macron did, occupy the center, leaving only the extremes. But are there other sort of broader forces in France that have accelerated this trend? Well, I I think it's a sort of question that's across the Western world, which is we're at a time when people are reassessing globalization, reassessing the notion of borders. I mean, in the United States, we know that the idea of borders and Trump wanting to build a wall and all of that was really important. And with Brexit, you're also seeing that in the UK with this idea of reinstalling borders and protecting the internal economy, things that we hadn't seen for decades, basically, after the war, where it was all about very much free trade, bringing freedom and prosperity to everybody. And and now there's really a sort of questioning of that, especially amongst those who feel, and this is much more the sort of lower income groups that feel they've suffered from globalization, for example, with local factories closing. I'm thinking particularly of the north of France, where you know, you used to have big steel works and, and things like that. And there's a sense that with globalization, all those industries have moved abroad and that we need to, and this is what's being pushed by Marine Le Pen, we need to return to a sense of national borders and sort of protecting our economy against a sort of vision uh, that's much more globalist on the on the other side. Now, of course, Macron will say he's not like a ruthless globalizer, that he too has a program to boost economy. But that's that's really the divide that's in the conversation now is, are you on the, the side of nations or are you on the side of bigger ideas like the European Union, like the Western world and all of that? 
Yeah, and this has really also fueled the campaigns of uh, Marine Le Pen and Macron. Marine Le Pen has really her strongholds, as, as Claire said, in the north and in the rural parts of the country, while Macron is very much the candidate of, of metropolitan areas and higher educated, higher income groups in urban centers. So this uh, this urban-rural divide, which we've seen in the US, which we've seen in the UK, and in many Western election campaigns playing out, this is also very much the case in this French presidential election this year. Yeah, it is striking how much you could sort of map this on to trends within American politics. It wasn't, though, clear that Marine Le Pen would be the candidate to go up against Macron in the second round election. At a certain point, it seemed like it might be the center-right candidate, Valerie Pécresse. At one point, it was a different far-right candidate that it could have been. Then at the very end, the far-left firebrand was increasing in the polls but didn't quite make it. What does Le Pen owe her comeback to? I will say that she's been uh, very skillful in this because during the whole campaign, she was seen as being slightly on the back foot. She was on her third bid. She had like crashed completely in the previous election, at least in the sort of presidential debate. It had been a humiliation for her camp. And so it was difficult to see how she was going to come back. And she was leading a campaign in the last six months that was like a little bit unexciting. You know, they were talking about the price of fuel. They were talking about buying power. You mentioned another far-right candidate, Eric Zemmour, who was having really radical propositions on immigration, on law and order, things that went really viral and that sort of dominated the public debate. And so that Marine Le Pen's proposals just sort of disappeared. But in the end, she's really come up from behind. So he didn't get through. And it sort of shifted the spotlight away from her. In a sense, the sort of establishment reaction against Eric Zemmour meant that everybody or at least most of the establishment felt Marie Le Pen was much more harmless, that she was nicer, that she'd changed. So she's she's managed to widen her appeal a bit, get through the second round, and now she's coming up against Macron and everybody's saying, oh my God, have you seen what's in her campaign manifesto? There's this, this, and this, and this. She wants to do this. So she's really had an interesting comeback that's been helped by this challenge from Eric Zemmour, who sort of attracted all the attention from the media away from her, and she came up from behind. And I think this is also the point where we have to speak about the, the Russian invasion, because that was really a game changer also in the opinion polls. Because uh, Eric Zemmour, this other far-right uh, candidate in the, in the first round, he had praised Russian President Putin in the past and really got into trouble after this. And we saw in our political poll of polls, his numbers really dropping after the start of the Russian, or the escalation of the Russian invasion on uh, Ukraine. And interestingly, or strikingly, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious also to hear um, Clea's take on this, uh, Le Pen was really able to, um, to hold her numbers and in the end even increase her numbers, despite also her quite good relationship with Vladimir Putin. But this has not hurt her campaign as much as it has um, destroyed Eric Zemmour's election campaign in the first round. Well, I can tell you what they say in the nationalist camp. Their reading is that basically Marine Le Pen's core voters are lower income groups. And so they're not really that interested in what happens in Ukraine. They're interested in bills at the end of the month, buying power, jobs, that type of stuff. Whereas Eric Zemmour is seen as being a much more intellectual higher end of the sort of nationalist spectrum where they're sort of interested in international affairs and so that 
they would have been much more worried about a war in Ukraine. At least that's how they see it, is that they see that in the end of the day, international issues don't affect Marine Le Pen's voters, but they do affect Eric Zemmour's voters. And that's why he crashed after the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, to your point about the different coalitions that they appeal to, it's striking to see, you know, thousands of people gathering in the center of Paris to support Eric Zemmour while of course, Marine Le Pen's coalition is more focused on these post-industrial, more rural, exurban areas in France. Of course, you oftentimes don't see far-right candidates campaigning in big American cities. You mentioned that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia changed things a bit. I'm also wondering, to the degree that it put inflation, the cost of fuel, food prices, things like that, in the spotlight... Did that also help Marine Le Pen? You mentioned that she had been focusing on purchasing power and things like that. I know inflation today in France is at 4.5%. From an American perspective, that sounds really appealing, where we're at 8.5%. But to what extent is that driving electoral behavior? The Russian invasion was, of course, on the, on the forefront of the minds of French voters. But interestingly, it really depended on the wording of the question that pollsters asked. So, for example, when they asked, well, what are you currently worried about? Then the war in Ukraine was was uh, listed among the top issues for voters. But when pollsters asked about what topic will determine your decision in the first round uh, or the second round of the presidential election, then the Russian invasion was way further down the list. And really the inflation and the cost of living wasn't by far or easiest, by far the most important topic for voters. And also there, Le Pen had really good trust numbers in polls when it came to this issue. So it sounds like, of course, Russian invasion, inflation, things like that are taking center stage. What other issues are motivating this election? And perhaps it's also worth asking the broader question, to what extent do policy debates drive French elections versus other things like the identity of the candidates or the way that they talk about French identity more broadly? Is that the kind of thing that drives voters or is it the brass tax of the retirement age, taxes, the cost of living, things like that. I let Leah talk about the policy debates, but uh, what I can say is that the French presidential election is, of course, a very personalized election with, with the two candidates really being at the center stage. And I would say only few policy debates make it into the actual arena. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you ask that because we're just coming up to our big presidential debate today, which is uh, pitching Emmanuel Macron against Marine Le Pen. And I was talking to a top um, official at the Macron's party who was saying, you know, it's really in the French tradition. We want to see the two candidates, the two personalities coming head to head. And it is the ability to sort of explain your policy and to detail what you're going to do. But what it shows is personal traits. So for example, the ability to spin round on arguments, the ability to respond quickly to things, to jump from one topic to the other, to have what they call répartie in French, which is being able to throw out puns and respond to jokes and uh, spin out of difficult positions. And so today with the debate, they're really going to be judged on those personal qualities Maybe more than than the policy issues. What I would say about the policy issues is that there's some things 
that become like real stick in the mud or thorns in campaign. It's like certain things will just gel as being an issue. Like, for example, for this election, pensions has been a big issue. So, for example, Emmanuel Macron wants to push back the retirement age. So you've got to realise that in France, it's everybody gets state pensions. So when you push back the age of retirement, that's bringing in loads of savings into state coffers. And so this is a real key issue. Whereas Marine Le Pen, who's much more on a sort of populist, wanting to give back money to the French, wants to uh, bring it forward. So lower the age so that people go retire earlier. And that has really crystallized as being the focus of this election with Emmanuel Macron being portrayed as, you know, the sort of tough love, bitter medicine man who will, you know, make you work longer, but it's for the good of our state coffers and for the the health of our economy. Whereas Marine Le Pen's much more in an empathetic sort of helping, looking out for the downtrodden, the people who started work at 16 and for whom, you know, working tough jobs, maybe blue collar workers who going up to 65 is going to be tough. And then the detail around the policy issues almost get forgotten. It's these sort of totemic numbers, you know, it's like 62 or 65, whereas the detail of the policy will sort of disappear in the debate or in people's minds. Surprisingly, one issue that has not really been at center stage is is, uh, the climate crisis and global warming or global heating, actually, which has never been a huge topic in France. But uh, only now in recent days, Emmanuel Macron has tried to win over some younger, more progressive and green voters from the left camp and has tried to to also appeal to them. But uh, over the course of the first round campaign, the environmental issues have not really been a center stage, which might be surprising given what an important topic it had been, for example, in the German election. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up. Given that in this second round dynamic, the left wing of France's political spectrum is not actually represented. So there's a centrist versus a far right candidate. You would think, doing the quick math, that that would help the centrist, right? The centrist would be able to get maybe more moderate conservatives and then the left end of the spectrum. But it sounds like it's not actually that simple when it comes to how the electorate is breaking down. So like, is Marine Le Pen appealing to traditional left-wing voters? And how is Macron trying to balance that? Well, first of all, I think we have to break down a little bit the electoral base of uh, left-wing Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who came in third with basically only one percentage point behind Marine Le Pen in third place in the first round with 22%. But these 22% are not his whole base, right? This was really the result of of a lot of strategic and tactical voting of the left camp. So a lot of green voters switched in the last minute, switched over to Mélenchon and also from other more center-left candidates, they switched over to Mélenchon in the last minute and gave him really this last minute boost in the polls and he ended up so close in third place. And so especially these more center-left and green voters, they, of course, are more likely to now choose Emmanuel Macron in the second round. But a lot of really more far-left voters who uh, voted Mélenchon in the first round, they are really frustrated also with the status quo. And some of them really want to shake things up. And so we see that some of them also switch to uh, Marine Le Pen in the second round. But already after the first round, the candidate himself, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, he made clear that he wants his voters to not cast a vote for Marine Le Pen. And now we see also a lot of those voters planning or saying in polls that they plan to stay home 
in the second round. And this would really be the only scenario, only the pathway for Marine Le Pen to presidency if left-wing voters would abstain in huge shares in the second round and Le Pen in turn would be able to really excite her base to turn out for her. When you mention, you know, the abstainers, that's the big fear in the in the Macron camp is that uh, left-wing voters will abstain. And so there's a whole load of second guessing going on. Like they're saying, okay, so we've got a good lead now, 10-point lead. And they're worried that people will not go out and vote so that those Mélenchon voters who are actually more towards the centre and who really don't want to go and vote for Macron because they think he's elitist and he's not enough to the left, will think, oh, it's fine, I don't need to go out and vote for Macron because uh, he's got a 10-point lead. And uh, so they're worried that those people who reject Macron but reject Marine Le Pen even more might be tempted to stay home. And that's the sort of interesting thing about the sort of Mélenchon voters is it's a whole spectrum between people who... You know, there's like almost two protest votes going like, are you doing a protest vote against Macron because you feel that he represents big business, ruthless capitalism? Or are you protest voting against Marine Le Pen because you think that she's an anti-democratic figure and that, you know, she's a far right threat to France? And so which pressure is strongest depends on where they feature in that mass of of people who voted for the uh, far left candidate. French presidential elections are as much elections or votes against one candidate as they are elections with votes for another candidate. So we see that uh, for a lot of voters, the vote in the second round is very much a vote against the other candidate and not so much in favor of the other one candidate that they chose. You've mentioned uh, some of the perceptions of the two candidates, and I want to dig into that a little bit more. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
So I've described Macron as the centrist candidate and Le Pen as the far right candidate. I think probably both of those candidates would maybe take issue to some extent. Probably more Le Pen claims that she is not actually on the far right. She says, I'm not on the right. I'm not on the left. You know, I'm for all French people, explicitly more targeting immigrants and things like that. And when you look at their economic policies from an American perspective, Le Pen's economic policies are far more generous when it comes to public benefits than Macron's are. In fact, you know, a French think tank, the Institut Montaigne, estimated that Le Pen's manifesto would increase the public deficit by 102 billion euros, while Macron is also promising more public spending, it would increase it by 44 billion euros. So that maybe sort of frustrates some perceptions of the left-right spectrum, which is what we started this conversation with, right? These two candidates do not fit neatly into the left-right spectrum that we expected for decades. How does the how is this all processed by the French public? When you show them pictures of Macron and Le Pen, what do they think? I mean, Macron does suffer from an image problem. I mean, he was a very young president, uh, 39, when he came to power. He has done a lot of things in his life. He was minister. He was uh, investment banker for Rothschild. And so he's seen as basically somebody summarized it quite neatly as, you know, he's that cousin who went to the States and got rich. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of resentment against him as being a successful person and therefore out of touch with normal French people who are struggling. And you've especially got to understand that in France, you pay a lot of tax. So you, you expect services, you expect the state to sort of step in when you're in difficulty. Whereas Marine Le Pen is somebody who's taken knocks. So even though she's the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who's nicknamed the devil of the Republic in France, you know, for his past comments about the Holocaust and things like that, even though she's got that baggage, She's also somebody who's taken knocks, who's always been on the sidelines of politics, who's always been seen as somebody who's not competent, who didn't go to the best schools. And with a persona, I mean, everybody recognizes Marine Le Pen, you know, her blonde hair. And, you know, she's sort of been there. Everybody knows about their family feuds and all of that. And so she's managed to use her difficulties in a way that's been quite smart in this election to sort of get, I'd almost say, affection. You know, a lot of people call her Marine, even people who aren't in her political camp. So they call her by her first name, whereas Macron is Macron. You know, it's his, his surname. Nobody else gets first name treatment in France. And so there's really different currents of sentiment going towards these candidates in France. And I think that first name anecdote that you just mentioned, uh, Claire, I think is really important also for international audience to understand why a far-right candidate can be at 45% in opinion polls in France. It's really that she managed to rebrand herself and get rid of this baggage of this last name, Le Pen, which really has a lot of baggage in there was this anti-democratic far-right father figure that the National Rally and so Le Pen's party. And she really managed to rebrand herself on a first name basis to her voters as Marine and as a candidate for president. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the coverage of Le Pen's increase in support in this election credits her toning down her image. And for context, I mean, she still supports banning headscarves in public. So not just veils that cover your face, but just uh, headscarves in general, which no Western country does. She's talked about moving immigrants out of public housing or off public benefits, things like that, that are pretty, you know, hardline right wing in this sort of new paradigm positions to take. 
So how has she gone about toning down her image? There's several things. I mean, you point to two big elements of her program that have actually become issues in the last you know, couple of weeks. But she's got rid of a lot of stuff that before would have really situated her in the, in the far right. I mean, some of the things like the benefits things for immigrants, that could also be something that the UK Conservative Party is interested mm -hmm. in. But the headscarf ban, that's clearly on the far right. So uh, what she's got rid of is similar things like she doesn't want to do Frexit anymore. She doesn't want to leave the Eurozone. She doesn't want to leave the European Union. Uh, she's abandoned things about Islam. She's toned down her rhetoric about Islam, saying that she's against Islamism, but she doesn't have a problem with Islam and she's for the integration of Muslims. So she's sort of been less inflammatory about that. And then uh, in terms of her persona, she used to be very punchy, very aggressive. She would go in and attack the establishment, be that sort of what Weiler type person. And so she's completely abandoned that and been much more sort of like mother of the nation figure. Although it has to be pointed out that in, in substance, a lot of her platform is still very much the same. So I would say I would say very much it's the rhetoric that she has toned down and that she has yeah. uh, has managed to, to detoxify a bit her image. One pundit, especially when it comes to uh, European politics and uh, her not campaigning for France leaving the EU anymore, is that now she doesn't want to get out of the bus anymore. She just wants to stay in the bus but drive it off a cliff. So a lot of her platform is still very much against European integration and very much putting the brakes on EU policies in many regards. So we talked about Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie. In 2002, against Jacques Chirac, he got 18% of the vote. In the last election, Marine Le Pen got around 34% of the vote. Now she is forecast to get somewhere in the range of 45% of the vote. It's probably not an either or, but in your estimation, which has changed more? The Nationalist Party, National Rally or National Front, whichever you want to call it, and the Le Pens, or France itself? Just the, the circumstances, I think, have changed a lot. With Emmanuel Macron destroying the traditional center parties, he has really changed the, the political landscape in France. And at the same time, with Marine Le Pen managing to tone down her rhetoric and become, uh, yeah, appealing to a voter base, these two developments have simultaneously managed to increase or heighten the ceiling of a far-right election results, I would say. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that there's an element of France changing because I think when Jean-Marie Le Pen was campaigning and he was campaigning on things like, oh, um, I can't remember, it was like 10 million unemployed people, 10 million immigrants in France, um, that was considered like very, very marginal and very radical and just uh, unseemly. Whereas immigration, for instance, has become like a very mainstream issue in France that people from the left, the right, even the far left see as something that has to be sort of addressed and as an issue for voters. And so some will interpret that as France is becoming more intolerant towards foreigners. Others will interpret it as the issue that immigration has to be properly managed and that with the enlargement of the EU that was quite rapid, uh, lots of movement across, uh, people uh, feel that the changes in society have been too brutal. 
And so I think that that has meant that they have been sort of at the fore of something that became a much wider debate on on either side. So I think that there is this idea of a choice in France between either uh, what's called the repli, you know, folding in amongst over yourself, like rejecting foreigners, rejecting immigration, rejecting cooperation with other EU countries, sort of returning to the idea of the nation and things like that. And then a much more open society that sort of believes in, you know, the European Union and all of that. I mean, obviously, one of the key things is that different people benefit from different choices. So the people who benefit from more open society, more globalized societies aren't the same as those who want, you know, more protection for their jobs at home and things like that. Yeah. Digging into the data that we have on elections in France a little bit more, I was listening to an economist podcast that was recorded before the first round of voting. But they said that according to polling leading up to the first round, Marine Le Pen was actually attracting the largest portion of the youth vote in France, which, you know, a lot of these trends do map on to what we see in the United States in terms of post-industrial parts of the country, rural parts of the country versus urban parts of the country. That struck me as something that doesn't quite map on to what we're experiencing in the United States. Could you tell me a little bit more about that data and what's going on there? Yeah, I would question these age breakdowns as it's not very clear. Different pulses have had different numbers on, on the age breakdown. So it's, and they have been a bit contradicting. But most of those results actually point towards Mélenchon having the largest base among the youngest voters in the first round of the French presidential election. And since the first round of voting, also more post-election analyses have come out. And most of them show that among the age group of the 18 to 24-year-olds, uh, Mélenchon won 36% of the votes and Le Pen only 16%. So that is actually quite clear that younger voters are still more likely to vote left-wing also in France. You know, putting the first round behind us, going into the second round of voting, what are the cleavages within the electorate? You know, I don't know if in France they sort of break it down and are almost as predictable as in American elections, but there are very strong trends in terms of how young people vote, old people vote, women vote, men vote, rural, urban, people of color, white people, etc. Do you have the, a similar kind of fragmentation, segmentation of the electorate to look at in France? Something which is very similar to other elections as well in France is that younger voters have way lower turnout rates than older voters. And that also explains also why, why Macron has better chances to get reelected because he's very popular among older voters. So among the age group of 70 and older voters, Macron leads with 70% actually in the polls. And in terms of changes from the first round to the second round, we see that, of course, the far-right camps of Eric Zemmour and Le Pen, they are going to, to support Marine Le Pen in the second round. So she, she can really count on those voters, while it seems that more and more left-wing voters are now switching from Mélenchon to Emmanuel Macron or going to stay home, but less and less of them are going to pick uh, Marine Le Pen in the second round. And then I've already mentioned the, the urban and rural divide. That's also becoming more and more visible also in the second round with really the rural countryside being the stronghold for Marine Le Pen and uh, city voters and more progressive voters voting for Emmanuel Macron in the second round. And I think in terms of like you were mentioning polling and breakdown, is that I think in France we don't have ethnic statistics and so we wouldn't have any indication on 
you know, the equivalent of like the Hispanic vote. I noticed there were some polls based on religion, uh, showing like, for example, what Christians, Muslims, etc. vote for, but you're not allowed to test or ask about people's colour as it's sort of against the, the traditions here of, um, I don't know, I mean, ethnic statistics and positive discriminations are things that just are not seen as being um, acceptable in France, which is um, quite difficult to understand if you're from a sort of Anglo-Saxon background. Yeah, something that's interesting for someone like me working at 538 who treats the census data as almost a Bible to work off of when understanding the country, it's surprising to find out that France doesn't even have basically a census in the American sense of the word. Making another comparison between the two countries and looking forward to the nuts and bolts of Sunday, we've had some pretty fierce debates over how people vote in the United States. From what I understand, France does not allow mail voting, but does allow voters to determine a proxy to vote for them in person on election day. But that by and large, voting in France is held on a Sunday and it's done in person day of, not in advance or by mail. Have there been any debates over the voting process or even the legitimacy of elections in France? Yeah, there's been very fierce debate because we've got a problem with turnout. I mean, for the presidential election, which is seen as like the supreme election in France, it's really the top important election, there's high turnout figures. But for all the other elections, like regional elections, local elections, people, people, people go and vote. And there's a lot of people asking for the voting system to be simplified. So to allow like mailing voting or other methods, uh, especially as generations change. I mean, people who are able to order on Uber and Deliveroo, if they, you know, have to go to their local police station to go and appoint somebody who's going to go and vote for them, they probably won't bother. And so that that's a problem with the youth vote, obviously, is to get people, uh, you know, because older generations have the habit, uh, you know, probably didn't change house in the last two years. And so they're on the, the electoral role of their local um, city council and, and, and so forth. And obviously, all these debates do also question that idea of fraud, especially in an age where everybody's aware of fake news, of, you know, the rise of social media, of uh, France has particularly, you know, had issues in foreign interference in elections. So, for example, the Macron leaks uh, in 2017, when a whole load of emails from Emmanuel Macron and his teams were thrown on the web, um, and it was confirmed it was Russian interference at the time. And so there are concerns about how to organise this. But there's a lot of pressure to get some changes through the system. As someone who's uh, following for Political Europe elections from across uh, Europe, I find it still very striking that um, despite uh, there being no mail-in ballots in, in France, the turnout is still above 70 percent usually in presidential elections. So despite it not being made easy for voters to vote actually in these elections and they really have to turn out on the day, turnout numbers are relatively high compared to other countries. But also that's only the case in presidential elections, which, as Claire said, are like the supreme voting days. So obviously, in our most recent presidential election in the United States, the losing candidate didn't acknowledge that he lost, still hasn't. And that denial of the results has driven a lot of political behavior over the past year plus. Is there any doubt that the losing candidate in Sunday's election will concede? 
Well, that is an issue, actually, of this election, because in the run-up to the first round, there was talk of a stolen election. So people saying, don't let your election be stolen. Also, the idea that Emmanuel Macron was sort of avoiding campaigning, like using the war in Ukraine as an excuse to sort of not seek confrontations with rival candidates. And so that in this way, he was sort of stealing the election. And so I don't think there's any fear that Marine Le Pen herself will concede defeat. She's repeatedly been quite clear that she respects the institutions of the Republic. And I think she will quite clearly concede defeat if she loses. So I don't think that we will face that sort of situation that you describe. But I do think that there is that sort of sense, this idea of not legitimate stolen election that's sort of swirling around. And um, it's partially, I think, to do to the fact that this idea of voting against, you know, people are voting, voting for Macron to vote against Marine Le Pen. So what legitimacy does he have then to go and sort of reform the country? Because people voted for him to make sure she didn't get to power. And so I think that's going to be a debate if he wins the election, after the election, and they're already getting ready for protests on the street. And one top official today told me, you know, it's going to swing. There are going to be protests, especially when you've got such a big turnout for the far left and the far right. It's going to spill out onto the street. There's going to be sporadic protests against what reforms we want to push through and, and so forth. And this also spells trouble for Emmanuel Macron and his uh, party or his camp than for the upcoming French parliamentary elections one month later, because uh, even if he wins now, mainly also with the support of people who want to keep Marine Le Pen out of the presidential palace, it's not clear that they will also back his party in the parliamentary election. And then he will also have trouble getting his policies made into law after the parliamentary election. We in America have no idea what that's like. Um, <laughs> I joke, of course. Uh, so it sounds like the fraught politics of all of this will continue for years to come. Just one last question here as we wrap up. Given the moment in which this election is taking place, the war in Ukraine is ongoing. NATO has put up a pretty united front so far. What is at stake for broader Europe and NATO in this election? Well, there's a lot at stake for NATO and European Union and the European Union. Of course, a victory of Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate, would basically mean a full push on the brakes for a lot of uh, European integration policies and uh, would make uh, closed ranks of the European states in negotiations with uh, Ukraine and Russia more difficult. But I think uh, Clea is also more the expert here to, to speak about this. It would be a big U-turn on sort of current French policy, as you say, on the European Union. On NATO, she wants to leave the integrated command of NATO. So obviously that's been sparking big debates here about what's the difference between NATO and the integrated command of NATO. But it does show that, and this is something that's sort of been in French politics, is that they don't want to be wholly aligned with the US on everything. And so she wants to leave you know, NATO and reclaim French independence uh, militarily. And so that therefore that sort of unity of NATO compared to Russia and on Ukraine will frittle away. She's also been on Ukraine. I mean, she's been quite ambiguous. She has condemned quite strongly the invasion of Ukraine. But when it comes to support, she's very cold feet. So for example, she says she agrees to send them protective gear Whereas at the moment, we're talking about sending them lethal equipment, tanks and so forth. 
So protective gear, what's that? Is that like uh, helmets? Is that how they're going to defend themselves? And also, when there was the second round of sanctions, her MEPs did not turn up and vote. And apparently, you can do proxy voting. So they didn't vote for the sanctions, the second round of sanctions on Russia. And so you can see that that, you know, and she's had past comments about Putin, that she admired Putin and so forth. And so there would really be this thorn, unhappy partner in the Western group that's shown real big unity faced with Russian aggression. And then on Europe, I mean, she just, it's what you said, Cornelius, it's this idea that she's dropped the quite radical and, and scary for the French, you know, idea of leaving the European Union. But there's loads of things where she wants to be difficult. So she wants to reduce contributions to the European Union. She wants to leave Schengen, which is a free movement of people agreement across the EU. And basically, the idea is that they see margins of maneuver in Europe to sort of claim back sovereignty and that they will be difficult every step of the way to be able to get what they want. And the problem is France with Germany, especially now that the UK has left, are the two main big powerhouses of the EU. And, and it's difficult to see how it would function in a Marine Le Pen presidency. Marine Le Pen might have dropped her last name and in her branding and in this whole election campaign, but the platform very much is still a far-right uh, election manifesto that she runs on. All right, well, we will see what happens on Sunday, but let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Clea and Cornelius. Thank you. Thank you very much, Galen. It was great to talk to you. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. Nash Consing is on video editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye.